Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Ooh, I'm freezing. <laughs> I am too. I know. What's going? <laughs> that's Dr. Natalie Marks with seven layers on, and that's a good place to start when we talk about keeping our pets safe. I want to talk about what to wear or what not to wear. So I get yelled at a lot by my wife, but that's a whole other show. <laughs> I get yelled at a lot by people when I say uh, Malamutes or Huskies, you know, because they have those breeds. And I'm talking, put a coat or jacket on your dog, a sweater, something. And then they call or email and say, well, I've got a Husky. I've got a Malamute. Are you crazy? I can't even get that dog indoors. So at what point, which dogs need a coat or a sweater? And what is, this is the question I'm sure you love, the magic temperature for which dog? So is there a magic temperature for chihuahuas? Is it different for greyhounds, etc.? You know, Steve, those are all great questions, and I wish I had the answer for you, but I don't think that's really been unanimously, unanimously determined across our industry. The rule of thumb still remains, and this has been this way for a few decades, but it still holds true. If it is too cold for you... For the majority of our pets, it is t- it's too cold for them. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. I mean, we do have breeds, you mentioned two of them, Malamutes and Huskies, that have been sort of accustomed to that cold weather. I mean, look at the Iditarod, for, for instance. However, there are still instances where they can be exposed to frostbite through their paw pads, on their ear tips, on their tail, around their face. Um, there, there are lots of different hazards out there. And remember, when the temperature says one thing, that's not counting the wind chill all the time. Oh, that's important. Right? I'm stopping you because I want to make a point to this. Dogs, or cats for that matter, they feel wind chill too. Absolutely. And again, we have on, typically today I have on Ugg boots and like two pairs of socks as I'm so cold. But remember, our dogs are walking on that frigid cement um, when we're doing their walks or going to the park. So it's really important for us to think about those vulnerable areas, just like in the summer when we put sunscreen on, right, on the non-haired mm. areas, we have to protect those non-haired areas as well in the winter. So if your dog will wear booties, amazing. I know we've I've struggled with a lot of families over the years of saying, I can't get near their feet. How am I going to put on booties? But booties are best if you can. Next best. Which, though- which kind? It's it's because the, there's lots of different kinds out there. So without mentioning brand names, I find that the ones that, uh, oh gosh, I don't know how to describe this, the ones you put on and they automatically close, if, if you will, are good, or the Velcro. Yeah, either of those. I like the ones that look like water balloons yeah, that you just yeah, slide yes, on. Yes. There's a, a few different brands of those. Um, and you can do, and you know, you and I are both you know, very, uh, very much big proponents of the fear-free movement and positive association. So you can certainly work with your dog to get up to them actually wanting and asking to put their booties on because they get some yummy treat or there's peanut butter on top of them and they get to lick it off, what, however you want to work with that. But if they aren't allowing that or you're dog just, you know, does the freeze and doesn't want to move with them, a great alternative is something called Musher's Secret or Musher's Paw. There's a few alternatives out now, there. Now, I have a question about that. Okay. Very controversial question. Oh, okay. Is it, is it Musher's Secret or Musher's Secret? I think it depends. Potato, potato. I, 
It is tomato, tomato. We, yes, can, we exactly. can go back and forth on this. However, you pronounce it, um, it, the outcome is the same, which is basically it's a, an ointment that puts a barrier between the paw and wherever it's touching. And in this case, it's very cold cement that can cause frostbite or contact with some of those hazards that they're out there, including the non pet friendly salt. What about Pam to spray uh, the non stick spray stuff that you can get at Jewel or wherever? Uh, not the flavored, right? Because the dog will lick that right off. But the unflavored, will that do the same thing? I think if you're in a bind, yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. But I think for long term and more consistent planning, trying to invest in either booties or mushers, mushers, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> secret is probably a better long term option. And why are we saying that? So when the dogs are walking down the street and they're doing that little dance they're not doing it i suspect because they saw britney spears on tv and want to do the same thing (laughs) they're doing it because i I would think it hurts it hurts it stings and although most dogs pads are um somewhat callous and they're very protective right because they have to be in contact with lots of different surfaces they are susceptible and let me tell you over the years especially here in chicago we have dealt with quite a few very painful dogs who have been exposed to frostbite or get so cold they can't feel their paws and then they end up stepping into glass or nails or any of the hazards that are of course part of urban city living so it's really important not only to do that but as soon as you get inside wiping those pads checking those pads making sure there's not cuts or again that non-pet friendly salt that they can be licking off and and getting uh, sick from I want to talk about pet friendly salt. Does it really matter? It does matter. Yeah, it does matter. Um, I I love Safe Paw. There's quite a few different ones out there um, that are now pet friendly and pet safe. And it's really important because not only does that it really irritate the pads, but if dogs lick that over and over, they can end up in some cases actually even getting a toxicity from it. A lot of GI upset, and and we've had some dogs that we've had to call poison control and really do some intense management. So it is important to do that, and and thankfully um, there's a lot of places within the city that have chosen to invest in pet friendly salt, but we just don't know which ones are. So around your home, please do that. If you're part of a condo association that you have a dog run that's shared, let's make sure we keep spreading that word that it is really important to make sure we choose that and to be clear it's not the pet friendly salt that the dogs are ingesting generally and getting sick right. from it's the street salt the hydrogen chloride is that That's what it's correct. called yes that that the dogs are having some of them get pretty sick from it right. uh, though it doesn't happen to every dog all the time it does happen as you point out uh, all right so how can you tell that a dog might be going toward uh, frostbite. The dog isn't going to tell you, I'm not feeling my ears, or even their paw pads. Sometimes the dogs are pretty stoic about it. They are. And I mean, pets in general are typically pretty stoic, which makes detection of pain sometimes pretty challenging. But if dogs are getting frostbite slash, we'll just say, um, in general, hypothermia. You know, in the summer, we talk a lot about heat stroke, right? What are the signs? I think it's important to know the signs of the opposite when your dog is getting too cold. Um, It's very similar to how you would anticipate a human looking. So they're going to be slower to move. They may be more intentional with their breath. When you touch their extremities, they can be extremely cold, even inside, where they're not getting blood. And remember, the 
the extremities, the tips of the ears, the ear margins, the nose, the tips of the tail, the feet. This is where they get the least amount of blood supply normally. So when it's really, really cold, what happens is, is their body tries to protect the most important things, which are the really important internal organs like the brain, the heart, the liver, and the kidneys. So blood shifts into the center of their body and they don't get much to the outside. Very similar to what happens with us. It's just a function of just survival. So if your dog's been outside for a long time, you've been on a long walk, they haven't been protected, and you come inside, they're really slow to move. Um, Some dogs will even vomit if this happens. They might even have a bluer tint to their gums, have very, very cold extremities. If you are lucky enough to even be able to take a body temperature, typically it's quite low. Remember, a dog's body temperature normally is about 99 to 101.5. We can see some dogs, especially that have been hypothermic down to 97, 96. This is really, really scary situation and for these dogs. Things, and if those things occur, it's a visit to the pet ER like One, instantly? 100%. Yeah. yeah. Treat it just like you would a heat stroke. We want veterinary intervention right away. All right. Right away, we'll be right back with more from Dr. Natalie Marks about keeping our pets safe over the ooh, cold. Just talking to you is making me cold. <laughs> we've, got, we've got to roast some marshmallows or something. I know. Something. I know. We'll be right back. Back on WGN Radio, Steve Dale's Pet World with Dr. Natalie Marks, who is right here in the studio and in Chicago, where it tends to get kind of cold. So here, I don't know that you remember Bob Collins or not. You might be too young. Yes, I'm, I think I'm too young, Steve. I actually oh. can say that for once. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. He was, uh, he was the morning man here at WGN for many years and a great radio broadcaster who loved dogs, famously had a dog named Booger. But he yelled at me once on the air and he said, and he was a great guy, I've got nothing bad to say, I wouldn't be at WGN if it wasn't for Bob Collins and uh, Tom Peterson, who did news in the morning at that time. But Mr. Collins said, what do you mean that the dogs, now this was... 25, 30 years ago, closer to 30. But he said, what do you mean those dogs need sweaters or coats or things like that? I had a dog growing up, was outside all the time, was just fine. Is there something to be said for, and this is what I answered, Mr. Collins, acclimation. You know, that those dogs were accustomed to being outside. It may have been fine if it was a big dog that was like a husky or Malamute or whatever, it may have been not as fine for some other dogs that we wouldn't do today, or at least most of us shouldn't do today. Uh, but nevertheless, they are still somewhat acclimated today. The dogs are not only indoors, but they're sitting next to where the heat comes out of the vent, you know. Uh, so is there something to be said for that? Well, of course there is. You know, and if you think about just ourselves, right? When we've been inside for a long time, next to a fire or in 70, whatever, two degree weather, and then all of a sudden you go outside into, I think this morning when I was walking, it was 19 degrees without the wind chill, right? That can be a potentially a 90 degree difference on your body. And while our bodies and dogs' bodies are pretty good at thermoregulation, right? Adjusting their body temperature to the outside, um, it takes time. And so if we think about our dogs as opposed to Booker, most of our dogs... Bo- uh, booger, actually. Oh, booger. Booger, yes. Most of our dogs are staying inside the majority of their day where they're in a very comfortable environment and they're not having to 
sort of be accustomed to the more harsh environment that is the winter in Chicago. And we're glad for that. But that's why it's even more of a shock when they go outside and they're not protected and then have to be accustomed to these below freezing temperatures potentially on a long walk. So I'm I'm with you, Steve. I, I no disrespect to Bob Collins, but I'm with you. Huh. There is something to be said to that. The rule of thumb though still remains. If it is too cold for you, for the majority of our dogs, it is too cold for them. So shorten your time, add in protection for them. And if you do want to get that exercise in, which I certainly strongly suggest, um, just make those small frequent trips instead of one big long walk. Well, another thing we could do is create games that the dogs can play, oftentimes with the kids, if there's kids involved, indoors. So the dogs are getting some activity Mental stimulation is, I think, just as important. It certainly is. And if you have the space, you know, not everybody in Chicago has the space to be doing a ton of inside uh, games. But if you have space or stairs, which if you have a dog that does not have any impending arthritis or certainly is has been used to doing stairs, um, I'm a big person for, for going up and down. And certainly you can do treats on each of the stairs or every third stair. And it really helps them to be rewarded and get that exercise in um in, inside where it's warm and safe. Um, but the other thing I, I don't want to forget about here, because we keep talking about dogs, Steve, is cats. Well, right? that's fine by oh, me. My gosh. So, I all mean, right. So, what, what, how important, I'm going to get into trouble here, but <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan of keeping your cats indoors 24 7 every day, 365 days a year. However, not everybody does. And I, I understand some people have rescued cats, heroic, you know. Uh, and these cats are just accustomed, so accustomed, to going out every day, it's hard to change their minds. We could do another show about (laughs) how to succeed at doing that, at least in some cases. Other people care for cats that are outdoor cats. They're uh, feral or community cats, but want to do the best for them. So can you give some tips to cats that are just going to be outside, and that's just kind of the way it is? Yeah, um, and... Let's let's all just be aligned that however your cat lives, we know you want the best for them, right? So um, for those cats that are going to be spending some time outside, a couple really important things. So one, please make sure they're vaccinated. Um, these cats, of course, are going to be exposed to a lot of other hazards that in, indoor predominant cats are, are maybe not, especially from other cats that are in these um outside communities. The second thing is, remember, they're exposed to potential toxins out there that maybe your cat that spends majority of their life indoors is not. One of the big ones is antifreeze, which I think we'll get to in in a few minutes. Um, But the third thing, and we've been talking about it so much with dogs, but cats are exposed to frostbite too. So if you have an outdoor cat that is not going to be in your home full time, please make sure that they do have an alternative space that they can go to to find heat. So whether that's a heated dog house in your yard, whether they have a garage door that they can come into and spend some time, um, there's got to be some place that they can get out of the elements because as it gets even colder, and we're, we're lucky that this has been the worst week thus far, but as it gets worse here and in other parts of the country, um, these cats can really get pretty sick um, from, from hypothermia and frostbite and some of the other hazards. So really important for them to have that safe space that they can go to for warmth and then be outside again when they're ready to. Do you remember Tony, Orlando, and Dawn? Yes. And, and the song... Knock three times. The original lyrics were knock three times on the car hood in mm. the morning. I think they should have been anyway. You know what I'm talking I about. I do. 
I do. So as I was just mentioning, you know, when cats don't have a warm space to go, they are incredibly fastidious and smart creatures. They will find a place to be. And that typically is under a car hood of a car that's been parked for a little bit of time, but still has a warm engine. So if your car is parked outside, especially in winter months, Take a cue from Tony Orlando. <laughs> Knock three times on the hood. It's just important to make sure if there is a cat under there, which you aren't going to see immediately, that they get awakened and startled and, and can move away before you start that car. And that happens more frequently than you think. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you have treated mangled cats. And oh. sometimes they just don't make it. And what's more, whose cat is it? That's right. I mean, the the unfortunately, too many cats are not microchipped. Uh, they don't have IDs on them, and, right. and here you're trying to save the animal's life. Right. I know. It, it's um, it's a tragedy that really shouldn't occur. But, again, the the best thing to do is knock three times and make some noises. And let- sing like Tony Orlando. <laughs> well, maybe not that, unless you're very comfortable doing that. But at least the knock is really, really important. Well, my na- now I know why my neighbors look at me the way they do. <laughs> so when we come back, there are some things. You mentioned antifreeze briefly. Uh, but there are pet-friendly antifreezes. Are they really pet-friendly? And there are some other concerns out there that uh, dogs or cats can get into. It has to do with cold weather. It has to do with keeping our pets safe over the winter season. Dr. Natalie Marks is here, and she will be right back on WGN. So here's the thing. The most common behavior problems in dogs, like dogs greeting people by jumping at the door, that's a normal dog behavior. It's normal for dogs to do that. They're happy to see people. Generally, they may be jumping because they're not so happy to see people. That's a completely different issue. But these are normal dog behaviors. The problem is not in the context of which we live day to day. Are they necessarily acceptable behaviors? There are a whole lot of them. And next week, we'll talk about a whole lot of them with veterinary behaviorist Dr. Valley Parthasarathy. We will also talk about heart disease in dogs and cats. And I will tell you, heart disease is more common than you may think. And sometimes it is. I mean, people say it's the dog or cat breed. Sometimes. But very often, it's the family that breed. It doesn't matter what breed or mix of breed it is. It's just family genetics. And sometimes it just happens. And what do you do about it? We'll talk next week with Dr. Brian Scanson, a veterinary cardiologist. Dr. Natalie Marks on WGN. We're talking all things winter and our pets. So here's something that you and I talked about. You may not remember, but I do months ago, and that is leptospirosis. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why am I talking to you about leptospirosis as we enter the winter season? And you said, well, of course you are. You should. Can, Can you talk about what leptospirosis is and why? This is more of a year-round issue than I honestly expected. Yeah. um, Lepto is probably my favorite disease to teach on, which sounds kind of weird at parties when I say I love talking about a disease from rodent urine, right? But it's because we can (laughs) really... How many parties are you not invited to? (laughs) Well, I don't know because I'm not going, (laughs) right? You're not invited. But it's such a big deal because this disease not only can be fatal to our pets... 
but it's zoonotic. It can transfer from our dogs to our humans. We now know there's been um, over eight cases reported in cats, so this is not just a dog disease anymore. But this is a bacteria that is urinated out from rodents, and I'm not just talking rats, even though we are in Chicago and we are the rattiest city, what is it, the seventh or eighth year in a row? Something Steve. like that, yeah. Um, but it's not just rats, so it's opossums and skunks and squirrels and all kinds, and raccoons, but also some farm animals can harbor this bacteria. Any urban wildlife. That's right. There, yeah. Yes, all the urban wildlife that we see. But once that's that's urinated, these, these rodents aren't harmed by this bacteria, but it lives in their urine, which lives in standing water sources. So puddles on the street or poor draining courtyards or, or those really helpful uh, communal water bowls at cafes that sit outside. Um, well-intentioned, but full of yuckiness, right? So <laughs> this, is, this is a disease that's really easy for our dogs to get exposed to, not just from drinking, but even just stepping in those areas and then licking their feet. So people used to think lepto was a seasonal disease or only in certain parts of the country. We now know from a lot of different studies that lepto is a disease that can affect year-round any place in the United States and, of course, other places. In fact, 60,000 people die around the world every year from lepto. So this is a big deal. Um the big thing that we have to think about, though, in Chicago, and I know I've noticed this, and I'm sure you probably have too, Steve, is that once it gets colder like this, guess where all the rats are going? Right? They're going to places that are warmer, too, which means trying to get into our backyards and trying to get into our basements and our garages and um, alleyways and all kinds of places that they're trying to, again, avoid the cold just like us, which means we are even potentially more exposed, meaning our dogs, to the potential for rodent urine in the these places. So really, really important to talk to your veterinarian, make sure that your dog has has their individual risks discussed, and if lepto vaccination is right for your dog, which I, just my own opinion, um, would certainly argue that it's right for almost every dog, unless they medically cannot tolerate a vaccine for because of some underlying disease. But most dogs in Chicago are exposed to lepto. Most dogs around the country are exposed to lepto, and we really can do so much protection through vaccination strategy. You know, uh, I, I don't want to get into a whole discussion about climate change. However, it's <laughs> here cha- you go. It's, it's, cha- it's changed. <laughs> it I mean, has you know, absolutely. Anyone? I mean, I grew up in Chicago. The winters aren't the same. Just anecdotally, based on my experience, but as Tom Skilling has pointed out on WGN many times, there's lots of data to support that. And if Tom Skilling says it, it's got to be right. Of course. Yeah. So. Has that made a difference as well, not only for leptospirosis, but because you'd think, okay, it's better for our dogs, and overall it is. If it's generally warmer, more days in which many dogs can enjoy the outdoors. However, there can be some downsides, too. Well, right. I mean, we know in the summer, we certainly have more dogs that are being exposed to heat stroke, right? It's it's getting hotter and harder for them to handle some of that. But in the winter, as you mentioned, let's just talk about tick disease, right? If we're going to talk in, sure. this is a bit of a tangent, but no, you no. took me there, Steve. I'm glad, actually. <laughs> right? So tick disease used to be very similar to lepto. We thought it was just the Northeast or just Door County, right? Upper, upper uh, Minnesota and, and Michigan. Um, but that ticks weren't really around or 
that as soon as it got cold, the ticks went away. Well, we know two things. One, last year, as an example, we need at least a week of a freeze for the ticks to go away. We did not have that last year in Chicago. We actually only had, I think, three days in a row of a deep freeze, and then it warmed up above 32, which means that the ticks that live in the permafrost, that little top layer right under the frost, um, are actually able to survive and come back out. So if we think that just because it got cold here, that our dogs are not exposed to some of the tick diseases like Lyme and anaplasma and Orlichia and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and all these other ones that are being discovered, we are wrong. Um, these warmer temperatures are allowing us here in Illinois and other parts of the country that are not Lyme, Connecticut, to be exposed to these vectors and expose these diseases and leptospirosis and some of the other parasites that are out there that are not being cold by these long extremes of frozen temperatures. That is a great point. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. Similar point having to do with weather change. Uh, not only in Chicago, but the suburban areas, there are retention ponds everywhere, and people yep. assume that they are frozen at some point in time, sometimes assuming correctly, and let the dog off leash, and the dog is having a great time skating, so to speak, on it, and then kind of falls in. And then the person wants to rescue the dog, I would, but then the person falls in. Uh, that happens every year. And while it doesn't happen to everyone, it makes the news every single year it does happen. It does happen. So let's just take an oath together and avoid that whole situation. Keep your dog on leash, especially in the cold weather. For me, as a veterinarian and a scientist, and I'll just say a nerdy educator all in one, assumptions don't mean anything. Like I, I, don't, I tell people, don't assume this. Don't try to avoid this because we know, just like you mentioned, um, assumptions aren't always correct. So for me, if if the only reason you're letting your dog off leash is to for the cute sort of skating effect that they might have from sliding on the ice, let's find an alternative way for them to exercise and have safe fun. There is nothing safe about a retention pond that might have ice that's too thin. It's not just the ice that's too thin where, where they can fall in, but we see torn cruciate ligaments, we see broken bones, we see all kinds of trauma from dogs that fall in the wrong way. So let's just keep our, our pets and our families safe this, this winter from being into those traumatic moments and certainly from risking all of the, the public service that is going to come mm-hmm. out to try to rescue too. Um, keep your dog on leash in the cold weather, weather months, in summer too, um, if you want to have that kind of off-leash play. There are dog parks and other safe areas and spaces that have been fenced in and are safe for your dog to avoid falling in the ice. Yeah. Uh, You know, you made me think of something that we haven't talked about. So we talked about which dogs need sweaters, coats, and jackets, and you described it a bit. Uh, But something that we should have mentioned is geriatric dogs. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we should, and we have more older dogs than ever before. So talk about that. Yeah. And it's... um, what we're going to talk about for geriatrics is very similar for pediatrics. So if you have a brand new puppy, uh, six to eight weeks old, this applies too. But our geriatric pets have, um, which is my sweet spot. Like I, I love the senior and geriatric years. It's just in humans too. Um, but especially for pets, I feel like that is when we as pet parents can do the most to give back that unconditional love that our pets have given 
to us for so many years. That's really when they need us the most. And what we have to remember is they don't regulate their temperature as well. They typically have arthritic pain. They typically have less vision. They typically have a harder time gripping. They typically um, can also have less endurance. And a lot of them also have concurrent diseases. So all of those things, when you factor in, means they are less tolerant to the cold. They can move less quickly, right? They are less inclined to avoid potential hazards on the ground because they may not be able to see or move out of the way as well. It's really, really critical that we limit their time outside. If they are outside, they are bundled up. They are going into safe places where there's not a ton of black ice on the ground where they can f- slip and fall, where they don't have to exert if they have heart disease, right? Uh, extra energy. Um, they're burning more calories um, because they can't keep up, which means we need to make sure that we're replenishing that. Um, there's a lot of things that go into caring for a geriatric pet, and one of them is avoiding extra time outside. Okay, important to know, uh, more important to know with Dr. Natalie Marks as we talk about safety toxins, things out there you might not think about when we come back on WGN. Dr. Natalie Marks is with us, and she is right now taking care of her car. How responsible of are you? And and uh, you have a garage? Yes. And you're pouring some antifreeze in. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> what? You dripped some. <laughs> oh, I see where you're going, yeah. Stephen. I don't like this. <laughs> okay, tell me why you don't like it. Oh my gosh. Just as a veterinarian hearing the word antifreeze gives me the worst chills because it's one of our worst toxins that we see, especially the active ingredient of ethylene glycol um, has been the cause of too many deaths over my many decades of practice. And it doesn't take much, does it? It does not. In fact, it's just a few drops for cats, um, a little more for dogs. Um, The thing that we forget about with antifreeze is that um, it, it unfortunately causes very permanent damage to the kidneys. The kidneys are essential, and once they are damaged, they are damaged. And often we don't see these pets until very late into their exposure, even though earlier detection in the past... um, you know, might have prolonged life a little bit. Now we have tests to look for antifreeze exposure. Um, we also have some, I'm going to call them antidotes, but they're not really truly antidotes, but at least some um, therapies that can help reverse some of the signs of antifreeze. And as you mentioned, there are some new antifreeze products out there that are labeled more pet friendly. Now they're not Perfect. No product is perfect, but it's definitely a lot safer than what we've had before. Rule of thumb for me is that if you are working on your car in your garage, pets are nowhere near. If you have any spillage of any kind, please clean it up. It's not just for pets, right? It's also for kids too. Um, but these these products, unfortunately, especially in the winter time, are a source of life threatening injury to the kidneys, and these patients really go through a, a pretty horrible disease process, many of them not making it. So it's it's just best to be, again, safe and protected. Keep that antifreeze far away and locked up. I am almost just out of your garage. If it does, again, spill, clean that up incredibly well before any pets are allowed around it. You know, one concern I have about, and you alluded to the fact that we'd be talking about this later, so now is later, uh, a cat, you yes. know, is outdoors there's no leash. I mean, we have no control over the indoor-outdoor cat. A surprising number will actually, I mean, people think, well, cats are too smart to look up antifreeze, Mm -hmm. but I don't believe that's true. No, they do. Um, And antifreeze does not have this horribly bitter, like, 
um, repulsive taste. In fact, many um, of the previous antifreezes were quite sweet. And so, um, yeah, cats get exposed to it. And that's one of the problems, too, with having outdoor cats is that we don't tend to see the early subtle signs that could indicate exposure to ethylene glycol. And we may not even know they were exposed. We may just see a sick cat, right? And so another push, I think you and I are definitely on the same page, is we prefer those cats inside. But if you do have a cat that is going to be outside and potentially sharing a space in your garage, even more important to make sure that garage is cat safe. What about snow? So, So we like to play in the snow. Well, let me rephrase that. Our kids like to play in the snow. Some of us do, too. Uh, a lot of dogs do, too. Uh, are there dangers to that? I, I suppose that they could twist and move the wrong way, but that can happen all the time to anybody. It's, you know, it's it's exercise, and that can... Uh, are there other dangers to being getting too wet and therefore hypothermic, which we don't think of, and that's kind of the route that I'm going? Yeah, Um so snow is, of all the things in the winter, is probably a little lower on my list yeah. as far as risks. But you bring up two important points, which is if you do have a dog that loves the snow, and like the perfect picture coming to my mind right now is a burner, right? A Bernese mountain dog. Yeah. Like I think of all of them just covered in snow year round. That's what they would love. Um, and certainly they're going to gravitate towards that. Um, what I would suggest is two things. One is if they're going to go play in the snow, Keep them protected. So if it's a Bernese mountain dog, they're, like we talked about, pretty custom to that. St. Bernard, same thing. However, if you have a um, pug who wants to go play in the snow. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, which is possible. Um, big coat and booties, right? Because they're going to have contact with something that is is fairly frozen. Um, the other thing is, is again, in my rule of thumb, if it's too cold for you, too cold for your dog. If it starts getting too cold, right? Set a timer and a stopwatch and let them play for a few minutes and then give them a break and warm them up, right? You don't have to spend hours in the snow for your dogs to have that wonderful joy of exercise. In fact, little short bursts is totally fine. What I get more concerned about in the snow are the unvaccinated dogs, right? Because What do you mean? Our well, our unvaccinated dogs who don't have protection against lepto and some of these other diseases are out there in the snow and what do they want to do with the snow? Uh, eat it yeah and that's where rodents urinate all the time so um we can't avoid some of these diseases i i think i would win at this point an incredible prize if i was able to find some way to use our eyes to actually see leptobacteria because we know we can't it's uh, it's microscopic and so there's no way to avoid that there's no way to avoid giardia when you're out there playing in the snow so just limit your time and if you are choosing to do that try to go to more of an untouched area, right? The middle of a field or some place where you don't have alleyway snow, right? That's been exposed to potentially other dogs that are urinating or rodents that are urinating or pooping or people that aren't picking up after their pets. And the other thing that you mentioned that I want to make a point of saying is that, I don't know, a goofy Labrador, will, <laughs> will, will, a big dog, you right? know, it's not going to get cold necessarily, but they do, but they don't tell us because they will play forever and ever and ever. Oh, this is fun. And yep. they'll keep going and going. And you have to be the adult here to say, okay, you know, you don't look cold. You're not acting cold, but I'm getting cold and enough is enough. Yep. We call it a pet parent for a reason, right? We parent our children and we need to parent our dogs uh, and our cats um, very similarly, especially when there's hazards that are 
is like you mentioned these crazy labs that are just going to power through until it's too late right where they they are hypothermic or they have frostbite or they do uh, tear something so set a timer be diligent um, be the parent here your dog is going to love it whether it's 30 seconds or three minutes right that just to be able to get that exposure and have that that few moments of joy the one and only dr natalie marks on wgn keeping us all warm and toasty Uh, keep your own dog comfortable warm and toasty i'm sure you will It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. So going into the new year, according to experts, which I am not, that I have spoken to, the two biggest drivers regarding homeownership, how the economy is doing in general, and interest rates. So why am I bringing all this up on a pet show? Because there's more that goes into it as to whether people buy homes or not. Now, interestingly enough, by the way, experts on the topic have told me there's a whole subset of people out there, a lot of them, that have no interest, 20-somethings, zero interest in buying anything, really, unlike their parents who, my dream is to buy a home. Not so for a lot of... So they're out of the picture. They have no interest in doing so. But those that do, what do they consider? Well, they consider a lot of things, how many children they have, how many bedrooms they need, on and on and on, where the schools are in the area, that may be important. But there's one other consideration right now, today, that wasn't as much of a consideration, say, just 10 years ago. And that is the pets. It turns out that when people look for new homes, they are considering, well, will the pet like it? Does it have what the pet needs or not? 75% of respondents say they would pass on their perfect home, their dream house, if they perceive it's not right for the pet. 84% rank their pet's needs as extremely important or very important in their home search. And What's most telling is that, well, about 5% of people say the needs of the pets, that's not important. That's only 5% of people with a pet. And today, most people looking for a home have at least one pet. Why is that? Well, most people, in fact, have at least one pet. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, here on WGN.